Hey guys, welcome out to the Backwoods. This is Jeff Wright on this uh, long-awaited episode of Backwoods Belief. I'm here with Ben. Uh, listener, I have asked Ben to fall on the sword, explaining to you why it has been so long since we've been with you. So, Ben, would you please uh, take the knife to your breast? Yeah, so um, you were away for a week on vacation, and I had decided I was going to do an episode uh, just without you. And we got on Conley um, Owens, who wrote the book The Dorian Principle, which is, if you're not familiar with it, is a book about... Um, just the way that money gets involved with ministry and how that ought not to be and how um, really Christians shouldn't be thinking in terms of making money off of ministry in in the way that uh, they're, requ- they're requiring money to do ministry for people, but rather that they're working in partnership as a, as members of the church. And it, it's a lot more complex than that. And it's a, it's a very interesting argument. Anyway, Conley and I recorded the episode and then um, just through bad decisions in technology, uh, we lost it, unfortunately. So we're going to have to have him back on again because I think it's a really good interview. And his book, The Dorian Principle, which you can get online, is definitely worth reading. Um, even if you don't agree with all the conclusions, it's a fascinating study. And I think he's doing some really good work that's really important to do. Like, we have to have this conversation. So I highly recommend that you check out the book, and we'll hopefully get him back on soon to, to do the episode. Yeah, there's but, a, let me just say, my bad. Well, there's a there's a big part of me. I probably maybe should have told you this earlier, but there's a big part of me that's kind of excited that maybe I'd get to sit in on this one. Um, yeah, actually, I think it'll be good to have us both on for it. So, well, I, I've got a, a quick ironic tale of how I met the Dorian Principle. I went to G three in Atlanta the time before this most recent time, and I got there a little bit late, and so I was out. Uh, I was going to get some food or something. And I ended up being in a Chick-fil-A with a guy who clearly was there for G3 too. And he works with the ministry that distributes the Dorian principle. I don't know. I can't remember the ministry name, but when we got in there, he walked me over there and put a copy of it in my hand along with some other stuff they'd publish. And so thanks G3. <laughs> <laughs> so, so have you read it then? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, great. Okay. Yeah. Well, it'll be good to redo that with both of us then. I think that'll be really helpful to people. Yeah, if I mean, if I can put a, a teaser out there, I've literally never read a book making that argument before. It, it you know, in a in an evangelicalism where anything new and novel, um, I say new and novel. That's not how he would frame it. But anything that kind of stands out as distinct from everything else is often troublesome. But this one is actually, again, like you said, even if you don't agree with everything in it, it's thought provoking. He he makes his argument from scripture. Um, yeah. It's just unique in in a lot of different ways. Yeah, and actually one of the things we talked about on that episode, not to rehash it, but one of the things we talked about, and he made a compelling case that this really isn't something new that he's presenting. Yeah. This is something that the church has dealt with a number of times in the past, You know, whether you're talking about simony or you're talking about the selling of indulgences. like The, the church has ad- had to address this issue time and again in the past, and just because in the 20th and 21st century, we haven't really stepped back and taken a look at the way we're operating with money. And I mean, you think about like Patreon and um, conferences and all of those different things that are happening right now. And nobody nobody has to this point, except for the, in this book, kind of stepped back and said, hey, is this right, what we're doing? Is this okay? We've all just kind of bought into that consumer mindset when it comes to those things and haven't stepped back and said, is this something that we ought to be doing with ministry. And so I think he's done that really well. 
Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I think the only other thing I've read that even touches on the same topic is something from John Owen talking about how clergy should be funded. So mm-hmm. you're looking at centuries, you know? Yeah. Uh, but we will we'll, we'll pin that as a teaser. We hope to get that rebooked uh, and get that to you guys soon. But for this episode, we are rising in praise of cultural Christianity. Right. Uh, ben, if it's okay with you, I'm going to read this definition from gotquestions.org. Um, listener, that's not an endorsement, but we were looking for <laughs> no, the most, <laughs> just the most uh, non-already tribal thing that we could find. Like, you know, the Gospel Coalition's written on this. Dean and Sarah's been on, focus on the family about it. We, you know, uh, trying, to, trying to stay away from some of that. So here we go, Ben. Cultural, <laughs> easy for me to say, cultural Christianity is religion that is superficially uh, identified as Christianity, but does not truly adhere to the faith. A, quote, cultural Christian is a nominal believer. You want to tell our listeners, just in case they don't know what a nominal believer means? It's someone who's a, a believer in name only. They claim the name, but don't practice any of the faith. Yep. Uh, Got Question goes on to say, the label has more to do with his family background and upbringing than any personal conviction that Jesus is Lord Cultural Christianity is more social than spiritual. A cultural Christian identifies with certain aspects of Christianity, such as the good works of Jesus, but rejects the spiritual aspects required to be biblically defined, uh, a biblically defined Christian. Some people consider themselves Christians because of family background, personal experience, country of residence, or social environment. Um, yeah, that's probably enough for the time being. Yeah. So that's clearly a negative portrayal of cultural Christianity. Uh, I've got an answer for this, Ben, but I'm going to pick your brain first. Was there ever a time you would have taken a negative uh, view of cultural Christianity? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, growing up in the the independent fundamentalist Baptist, the, the cultural Christians were our main field of evangelism. You know, when you go door to door soul winning and you knock on somebody's door and they say, well, yeah, I'm already a Christian. And then you kind of have to convince them that they're not they're not actually a Christian because they've never, you know, personally trusted Jesus as their savior. They've never, um, in in our case, never prayed the, the prayer um, and put their faith in him. And so we would, you know, we'd always ask him the question, well, what do you think is going to happen when you die? Like, are you, do you know where you're going to go when you die? And oftentimes they'd say, well, I hope I'm going to go to heaven. And then you'd launch into the, the explanation of why they can have more than just a, a, a hope in that sense. But if they've you know trusted Jesus and repented of their sin and believed in Him, that they can have a confidence that they will be saved. And so when and this was you know what early two thousands that we were doing this, any normal neighborhood around where we lived, everybody was a Christian. Everybody was a Christian, but not very many were regular church attenders. Not very many actually knew what it meant to believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. Um, and so it was that. I think it's probably not that way anymore as much um, just because we've moved from, you know, uh, Aaron Wren's positive or neutral world into negative world where now people are actively trying to distance themselves from Christianity. But yeah, when I was younger, certainly to make a long story short, certainly I had a negative view of cultural Christianity. Well, probably to the surprise of no one, your experience parallels mine. You know, I grew up, uh, it wasn't quite fundamentalist Baptist church, but it was like, the closest that an SBC church could be to that. 
we went on visitation like you're describing. And even as I was a young man in ministry, I didn't have to do this a ton with students when I was doing student ministry. But uh, as a pastor, what you just said is you had to spend a lot of time convincing people they weren't saved in order to get them to hear the gospel in a way that might lead to saving faith. And so I would have taken, and I did, I took a very negative approach to uh, cultural Christianity. I remember, this is crazy, I have never thought very highly of J.D. Greer. You know, that that mark is at the lowest ebb it has ever been, but I've just never been super impressed with him. But he wrote a book called Stop Asking Jesus Into Your Heart. And there was kind of a controversy around uh, the book. You know, some of the anti-Calvinist Baptists were upset about it. And I remember thinking, like, well, I'm glad he wrote that. I'm glad somebody has finally come out and said, you know, the way we're doing evangelism is not really pushing us towards true converts. So yeah. there's a uh, I, there's a story of <laughs> what a difference a few years will make for you. You know. Yeah. Yeah. So. Um, um, well, go ahead. I, I've got another yeah. question. I'd rather hear what, what was on I, your mind. I just rem- I just sort of off topic, but I remember my introduction to that was hearing the Ray Comfort give a lecture, Hell's Best Kept Secret. Have you ever heard this? It I've was heard long, of it. Now, is, is it connected it, to Way of the Master? Yeah. Yeah. It was like one of the first things they did as Way of the Master, I think. I could be wrong about that. Um, but he... It just blew my mind because I was in I was still in the kind of fundamentalist mindset at that time. And I say fundamentalist pejoratively there, but I mean, like the easy believism part of it. Mm-hmm. And he just the way he presented, you know, we're not using the law of God in our evangelism. We're not really confronting people with their sin or even why they need a savior. We're just telling them, you know, do this so that you'll have the parachute when the plane starts to crash. But they don't even know that there's any problem. Like, it's just like kind of a. A ticket you can hang on to in case you need it. Um, and it was just uh, an incredibly eye-opening experience to to hear him describe that and then describe the sort of recidivism. Oh, oh, boy. I don't know. How, I'm not recidivism? That's the word. Thank you. Let's go. Uh, <laughs> Takes two, buddy. Takes a team to make the dream work. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, but the, the rates of converts who would just fall away at the, the first moment of trouble in their Christian walk. And he was trying to address that problem. And it was it was just a it's a really good. I think a lot of our listeners are probably past needing to hear it. But if you go back and listen to it, it, it's a really encouraging like this is the way out of the evangelical, easy believism mindset. Yeah, that's a really good segue to what I actually want to ask you about. I've never really read anyone do this, but, you know, church history is an interest to both of us and theology is an interest and ecclesiology is an interest. My sense of how we got here with the easy believism stuff that cultural Christianity sort of describes uh, is that, I mean, it really does come through evangelicalism and the Great Awakening. Mm-hmm. You've got, w- with the actual Great Awakening, you've got a population that is very well catechized, but does not, at least, you know, according to Edwards and those guys, doesn't have a living faith in Christ. They don't have an experiential conversion. They don't have an active sense of self-dependence upon him. He's pressing them for, uh, you know, I say he's pressing. Ultimately, clearly he wants the Spirit to do this work, but he's pressing them with basically, you know, you can have all this head knowledge, but no affection for Christ. Can you really believe that you've trusted in him and uh, the Lord does a great work? Finney comes along, sort of corrupts that into something that you can market, you can manipulate people into. We have these sawdust trail 
brush arbor kind of meetings where people I don't know if they're even aware that they're blending Edwards and Whitfield with Finney. That ends up taking over low country churches. I say low in the terms of liturgy. Mm-hmm. Uh, it gets, you know, Rick Warren, Bill Hybels, they pick it up and industrialize it through business practices. And so this thing that began with a pitch and a push and a prayer that God would give people a living faith in Christ and an experiential delight in Him becomes this mass-marketed product that uh, you know leaves people who are very self-consciously still in that tradition coming out of the Great Awakenings. Like, think about what would motivate a church like yours to go door to door. It's the same kind of evangelistic zeal that would carry a Whitfield or a Wesley out. But it seems like by the time it gets down to our generation, a little bit before, a little bit after, uh, it has caused the problem that initially the Great Awakenings. Uh, we're trying to address, and God was pleased to address through a, a miraculous work of the Spirit. Does that yeah. make sense? Do you think I've misread that? No. Um, have you ever listened to the sermon? It's by um, Paris Reedhead, Ten Shekels in a Shirt. Oh, no. Is this about the, um, there's a there's a prophet or a priest in an Old Testament narrative? In, in Judges, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. I know the yeah. text. Yeah, so he preaches a sermon about Using that story as sort of a launching point to talk about, um, I guess, the way that evangelicals were using God as a means to an end. Um, But he gives in that sermon. It's a great sermon, by the way. It's about an hour long, but it is well worth listening to. So, listeners, if you haven't ever heard Paris Reedhead, Ten Shekels in a Shirt, go find it. It's online. Well worth listening to. But he, excuse me, he... Um, gives a sort of outlines how we got here. And he talks a little bit about the things you were just talking about. And But he also talks about how there was a day when, um, you know, liberalism was sort of creeping into the church. And so you had men get together and say, okay, well, in order to be considered a fundamentalist, you need to believe these things. Like, these are the things that make you a Christian. Like, believing these things are what Christians believe. Like good catechism. Yeah, and he was specifically talking about the five fundamentals of the faith, you know, the resurrection of Jesus, miracles, things like that. And he says, but the next generation came along and said, these five things are what make you a Christian. If you believe these five things, you're a Christian. Mm -hmm. And the next generation came along and said, all you need to do to convert somebody is get them to assent to these five statements and then say, brother, you're saved. And uh, I think he was onto something with that. Yeah. Where we we sort of watered down the message to just these five statements of intellectual assent. And you even think about it when we in a lot of evangelical and fundamentalist churches when they're doing evangelism, what is it? It's four spiritual laws, or you know, just you need to believe you're a sinner, believe Jesus died for your sins, and ask Him to come into your heart and save you. And that's it. Like that. Now you're you're in. Uh, mm-hmm. And, there, you know, there is some truth to the fact that the gospel is not something you need to prepare yourself for, that you you can just turn from your sin, trust in Jesus, and he will save you. But they make that like the full extent of what Christianity is, is just assenting yeah. to these statements. And uh, so I think he was onto something, and it's exactly what you're describing. No, that, that sounds entirely credible. Uh, remind me, 10 shekels in a shirt by who? Paris, Re- Paris Reedhead. R E I D H E A D. Yeah. Well, as you were going through that, it clicked in my head. Um, I am actually dependent upon 
Ian Murray. Have you read Ian Murray's stuff? I haven't. Okay, so Ian Murray's really good. I think he personally knew Martin Lloyd-Jones, maybe, but you know he's a Banner of Truth guy. Mm-hmm. And he wrote a book called The Old Evangelicalism, contrasting, again, the kind of Edwards and Whitfields of the world with what came after them. And he also okay. wrote a really good book called Revival and Revivalism that uh, marks the shift between the first great awakenings and, and, you know, depending on what you think about the other awakenings, what came after them, what came after it. Mm-hmm. But it's pretty, I say all that say, it's pretty similar to what you're talking about there. Like, he does lay some of that out. I don't, you know, neither neither of his books gets down to what we would call cultural Christianity, but it sounds very similar to what you're talking about with the the sermon. Yeah. Well, okay, so here's the question then. We, we've assumed it. Uh, if you follow us on Twitter, you know it. When do you think your perspective on cultural Christianity began to shift? I, I have a sense of when mine did, but I'm curious how closely they overlap. Oh, man. Um, probably as late as the 2015, 2016. Um, just watching the way that very simple people who, you know, didn't have the theological training I had, didn't have the the um, vocabulary to talk intelligently about theology or Christianity, but recognized huge social problems and we're like we need to do something about this like we we can't just let this happen to our country um and i began to you know like the the i think like marjorie taylor greens of the world who Mm -hmm. i don't you know i don't think is really someone that ought to be trusted when it comes to talking about the gospel or theology or anything like that but clearly has a uh you know some form of trust in jesus and wants to see her country um, submitted to him in some way that she understands. And I saw a lot of people like that, not just her, but a lot of normal people who had that feeling. And um, probably not just related to Donald Trump, but also the the uh, social justice stuff mm-hmm. sort of arising at the same time. Um, just people who are like, no, this isn't right. Well, and COVID nonsense would have been in there too, where people are like, I, I don't want my church shut down. I'd rather go yeah. to church than right. you know, wear a mask and stay at home. Yeah. Um, and so that's my mindset began to shift on that. And just, um, you know, the more that I spent time around the theologically educated and elite, the less I wanted to be like them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, Praise the Lord. And I realized, you know, all of that stuff that, and we've talked about this before, all of that stuff that I sort of made fun of in my youth, um, there's, there's something good about it. Even if, even if it may not be where I am today, um, it set me on a path towards that. And, uh, that's, that's well worth preserving. Yeah. Yeah. That definitely is, uh, a part of the feeder for me, mm-hmm. but I think you, you might get a chance to laugh at your Baptist buddy here. Um, I, I came I came up doing the traditional I say traditional I don't know if it's traditional or not but there was a clear roadmap in my tradition with this you know the the church identified some kind of gifting for ministry uh, your first gig was going to be working with students then eventually they'd move you up to some kind of associate pastor or something like that eventually become a senior pastor so I did that you know mm-hmm. and working with students I realized how broken student ministry was in terms of actually moving students into adult faith and then staying in, right? So 
I read um, a Presbyterian dude. I wish I could give him credit because it was the best um, book on student ministry I read. I'll have to look it up, but it, it was basically a means of grace ministry. So he he was trying to connect students with uh, adults in church. They were building a ministry around taking uh, you know the means of grace, preaching the word. Well, eventually that led me to Vody Bauckham with Family Driven Faith, and mm-hmm. I started seeing, you know, kind of a, for me at the time, a pretty radical different approach to church as being the the one most uh, consistent with God's design for raising disciples up. And I ended up meeting and having a friendly relationship with a Missouri Synod Lutheran pastor who was going to uh, consider applying to the Christian school. and. One of the things that the Christian school uh, process at the time, I don't know now, but at the time, they would ask you, when did you, you know, when did you become converted? (laughs) And I was having lunch with him and he was laughing and he said, my kids just do not think of their faith that way. Yeah. But we've learned to kind of put it into language you evangelicals will understand. Um, and so he's laughing his way through like, yeah, we had a, you know, I felt a strange stirring of the spirit one evening and, you know, like it, it was legitimately funny. Yeah. And as I'm chewing on all those things, I, I can't remember who it was, but I met someone who said, I've always believed that Jesus was who he claimed to be. Mm-hmm. And this person was, and, and still is clearly manifesting the presence of the spirit, Christian character, solid belief. And I thought, you know, I've got kids now. That is exactly what I want them to say. Yeah. And um, I went, you know, that was probably happening a couple years before the time period you're describing. But all that's germinating in my brain. And then I watched the same scenarios you're playing out, like where is resistance to abortion? Where Mm -hmm. is resistance to tyrannical government? Where is, uh, you know, where are there people who still have a positive view of the church? Where are people, by the time COVID hits, uh, where are there people saying, no, going to church matters to me, and I'm going to do, you know, I'm just going to do that instead of what the government tells me to. Now, of course, there's, you know, nobody thinks Southern California, where John MacArthur's at, is cultural Christianity, but where are the biggest people? And then, like you said, with the social justice stuff, where are the people who are like, you know what? I'm having all this sold to me in theological language as if celebrating BLM burning a city is loving a neighbor, but I don't buy it. And I'm just looking like, where is the, you know, if you if you lay this on a map, where are these people at? And it's all the areas where we would say it's cultural Christianity, right? Yeah. I mean, I'm going for, a, I'm going at length there. Anything you want to jump in on? Yeah. I was thinking about, uh, you know, who John Cooper is. Yeah. He's Skillet, like, like the, yeah. The, okay. I never listened to Skillet, so. Oh, yeah. The bet. Seriously? Truly. I wasn't, I wasn't allowed, but. <laughs> the best concert I ever went to was a Skillet concert, and I've been to a few concerts. All right. Uh, anyway, um, the reason I bring him up is because he, I've heard him talk about like when he started to recognize all of the stuff going on, and it was when he was realizing like all of his friends in the Christian music industry were apostatizing or compromising on like uh, foundational Christian beliefs, and he's like, "What in the world is going on here?" Um, and that's kind of how I felt getting into sort of the the seminary world, the world of, um, I don't know how to describe it exactly. They're not elites exactly, but like the highly educated, um, theologically astute class of Christian, you know what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. Yep. And I'm looking around, I'm like, 
wait, what's going on with all these guys? They're like, they're, they've got no backbone. They're not standing up for anything. Um, they, they are, as we've talked about, you know, a hundred times, they're stalwarts in the battles that were won a hundred years ago. And the ones that are they're facing today, they're, they can't seem to come up with an argument against them. Um, and I'm like, what in the world is going on? And then all of the people who are remaining faithful in all of those important things are the cultural Christians. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so that, that probably had a, a large factor in my rethinking my negative attitude toward cultural Christianity. Yeah, the, um, the, the version of that, I guess for me that, or, or, or rather that version was very relevant to me as well. I think the thing that tipped me off, you've, you've called back to stuff we've talked about earlier, not too many episodes back, we talked about how with the evangelical elites, you can pretty much at this point find the right path by saying, what do they want? What are they advocating for? What are they criticizing and doing the opposite? Yeah. And uh, it was Ray Ortland, man. Ray Ortland, who's not too far away from me. He's in Nashville, uh, close enough that like guys who I knew were driving down to participate in the men's ministry at, at Ortland's church. Um, he just went on this tirade uh, about cultural Christianity, and he said, I can't wait for it to die. I remember that. Yeah, I remember and I that. remember thinking, he is such an idiot. Yeah, yeah. And his, I, his I, rem- sense- I vividly remember that, yeah. Yeah, his sense of the Christian faith is so, I mean, I don't have clean words to say this other than backwards, <laughs> Yeah, that I should disagree with him. I already had sort of these ideas gestating that we've already been talking about, but he he really was the the idiot that broke the camel's back for me, where I thought, yeah, my my inward sense that cultural Christianity isn't a problem, it may be a, a gift, is right, because yeah. Ray Ortland thinks it's a bad thing. <laughs> right. Uh, and, and, you know, with him, I know I'm monologuing at this point, forgive me, but no, all that Ray Ortland has is, is a product of him doing ministry in a culturally Christian area that mm-hmm. is of significant population that he can have a mega church and a very comfortable lifestyle. Yeah. You know, Ortland's, Ortland's vision of the Christian faith kneels before the zeitgeist. Yeah. It, there's nothing that he is having to sacrifice uh, in the name of Christ. You know, he uh, he just does what the spirit of the age tells him to. If there's any toxic version of cultural Christianity, it's him. Yeah. But the version it, he's criticizing is paying for all of his food. It reminds me of <clears throat> something that frustrates me to no end is living right, right now. We live in a little city and seeing these beautiful churches that were built by, you know, my forefathers in the faith. Yep. And now they're pastored by uh, Pastrix Karen, and who is just not only sucking the, the souls of the congregants dry and, you know, damning these elderly people to hell, but also sucking the money from the, the, um, the gifts and uh, endowments and just wealth that was given by faithful people centuries ago to these churches and denominations. And now some faithless uh, witch is living off the pension given to her by faithful people who came before. And that's that's what I think of Ray Ortland in a way. Absolutely. Like he, he's standing, standing on the shoulders of cultural, faithful, simple Christianity. And then spitting down at him. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, in that sense, he is the representative of his entire class of evangelical parasites. Yeah. But you're right. That that's what that's what like the metastasized version looks like, right? Like Ray mm-hmm. Ortland's the first wave and the second wave is the Pastrix in the big building. Yeah. It does suck to drive around a big city and look at all the gorgeous churches. It well, it sucks on two fronts, Ben. One, I'm like, Baptists don't do this. Why don't Baptists do this? We, you know, our, our buildings look like metal bread boxes. Yeah. And then number two, why do the liberals have them all, man? It's just awful. Yeah. And, yeah. and when that when that last vestige dies off, I saw this in Phoenix, and it just crushed me. When that last vestige of Pastrix, Karen, peters out, it doesn't go to a faithful congregation. No. You know, they don't inherit the building. It becomes a hipster taco place. Yeah, you know? yeah. a coffee get, shop. Yeah. You go to Phoenix, you can go eat at Missionary Taco, which is in this glorious old Methodist building. And I think I've mentioned this before, but they have their church rolls set out as like kitschy decoration pieces. Ugh. It's gruesome. The tacos are great, but it's gruesome. Oh, man. Yeah. Yeah. So when I think to sort of make this into a point, when you celebrate the death of cultural Christianity— that's what you're celebrating is the <clears throat> the destruction of you know faithful churches and the the gutting of them and turning them into a commodity that mm-hmm. pe- people can go and you know do an art exhibit in or something yeah purchased authenticity mm-hmm. yeah I, I'll <clears throat> tell you there was a version of an argument that solidified in my brain that I will pitch. I think we have talked about this off air, but I'll pitch it to our listeners. And I think this is sort of, I don't know, I think it's definitive. I'm called to love my neighbor. What kind of culture is best for my neighbor to live in? Is it a culture that is pre or post Christian, filled with pagans practicing the occult, blasphemers, blaspheming in the streets? You know, if you go pre Christian, uh, Native Americans, murdering their neighbors, sacrificing them while they're still alive to pagan gods. Or, you know, Seattle, where every shop has crystals and New Age accruements. Yeah. Is that better? Or is it a, is it better for my neighbor, who I'm called to love, to live in a culture where most of the people around him think it's probably important that we pray before we eat? And even if I'm not a practitioner in the faith, I should probably bow my head. What's better? Yeah. yeah. I realize there's challenges, right? There's the challenge of helping someone who may believe themselves a Christian do the hard work of discovering they're not. But it seems so crystal clear. Um, I've mentioned this before. I have an uncle who's not a believer. Do I want my uncle, who I love? I, I really love my um, my uncle, and I, I want to see him come to Christ. Do I want him living in an environment that tells him it is right and good to be his most authentic self by pursuing his inward appetites? Or do I want him in a culture where he has heard the gospel, authentically heard the gospel? Maybe not the way I'd preach it, not the way that I would emphasize certain parts, but he's authentically heard the gospel probably 30 or 40 times in the course of his life. It's a no-brainer. I know exactly yeah. which one I want him in. And he has a higher quality of life in the Lord's providence, to you know, to my first version of this, he has a much higher quality of life being surrounded by cultural Christianity. If he never converts, this is one of the ways the Lord is kind to make the rain fall on the uh, the unjust than he would living among a bunch of pagans. There's just no question. Yeah. Um, the 
the the two alternatives i i think about um i heard somebody make this argument i can't remember if it was on when i was in college or seminary i think it was college um somebody was making the argument about the first century you know before christ showed up and how the the various different philosophical movements that were starting at the time were almost preparing the way for the pagans to adopt christianity like you had this yeah. Uh, the the kind of middle neoplatonism that's saying there is one god uh who is the the prime mover of all things and mm -hmm. um you know obviously it's not christianity that they're subscribing to but there was like a preparation for the gospel to go out among yes. the, the pagans yeah and i think it, i think about that in terms of cultural christianity um do you want to have an entire nation of people who are totally unfamiliar with the story of Jesus, and then you present it to them, is that better than having a society that has been in large part catechized, you know, maybe not technically, but in a real way in Sunday school, you know, just hearing the gospel, hearing prayers made to Jesus uh, before the, every meal, they, whether they know it or not, they are being discipled already toward this thing. And yes, that means that they will face greater judgment if they reject it. But it's, you know, it's been set before them their entire lives. Uh, and not only that, but like you said, it just makes for a better life to be surrounded by that because it's, yeah. you know, according to nature, like this is the, this is the way God made the world is that you ought to be worshiping him. And it's better for you if you're in a society that even just pays lip service to that. Right. So, I mean, this is exactly right, Ben. I, I will own, you know, we, we talk often about Lewis. Several years ago, there was a, a Christmas sermon that Lewis uh, had had preached, but had been lost. And it was rediscovered. And it's kind of a big deal in C.S. Lewis circles. And so in that sermon, he actually says, like, it'd probably be better for the West if we would repaganize. And so some people will take that point and be like, no, no, Lewis wants a, you know, Lewis is so helpful. He, see, it'd be better for it to be pagan than sort of this burned over stuff. But Lewis, one, can't at that point conceive of a post Christian culture. He doesn't realize how gruesome a paganism is that is hardened against the gospel, right? Yeah. Um, but also, he's saying that in response to materialism. He wants paganism to reemerge. Uh, re to it's like wanting Godzilla to be to kill King Kong. So now mm -hmm. you've got just one monster, and that monster's been weakened by fighting the other. Um, he thinks paganism is the preferable problem to materialism. And so, to yeah. you know, to the to the person who objects on those grounds, here, here's the other version. If I can keep using my uncle, if my if my uncle wakes up under a deep, mysterious conviction of sin in the middle of the night. One, he has categories for what's going on, right? He he has the he has mm -hmm. the right categories. Um, he's not thinking that his chakras are misaligned, yeah, or that he needs to gaze into the crystal. Yeah, he he's not going to go. He's not going to go sacrifice a goat to Umbum Gumgum, you know the the pagan god that he and his family have always worshipped, right? Or or something <laughs> that's even you know, I mean, this happens in major U.S. cities. Something even dumber, like rearranging the furniture in his apartment to get his feng shui straightened out. Yeah. Right? I mean, that's literally how these people cope with these things. Yeah. So if he wakes up in a crisis of conscience in the middle of the night, which God has done countless times in history, he has the right categories for what's going on. I've offended my Creator. I'm not walking with Christ. My sins are of eternal consequence. He has that right now. And he can grab his phone 
and virtually every contact in that phone will either be able to profitably point him to Christ or will know someone who can. And yeah. the ones that can't, he already knows when he picks up his phone. Yeah. Just again, where do I want the neighbor that I'm called to love to live? I want him to live in an environment where the guy that he plays pool with on Tuesday night at the bar is someone he can call in a moment and be like, hey, I'm dying here. I'm afraid I'm going to... I'm going to go to hell. And that guy can say, look, uh, let me get let me get my pastor. He'll talk mm-hmm. to you. Of course I want that. Of course I yeah. want that. Screw off, Ray. Screw off, Ray Orton. <laughs> you know, what's funny about that, too, is, um, and I've, you know, I've heard these conversations in bars where it's two guys who, you know, are probably a little far from Jesus at the time. And one of them has something like that happen to him. And the other guy's telling him, man, you need Jesus. And they're yeah. both, you know, right. five beers deep. It's like, right. e- even that I would prefer. Like, they, they know what's right. They're not doing it. But it's they are surrounded by it. It's inescapable. They know what's right. Yeah, yeah. And yeah I would, can I tell I would you the much funniest prefer a society that? like that. Yeah, go ahead. The funniest version I ever saw of that, there was a movie made about MC Hammer. I think it was made for TV, but there was a movie about MC Hammer. And do you remember, I don't know if any of this is important to you. I'm probably aging myself on this. But do you remember at one point, MC Hammer tried to turn like towards harder rap and ended up on death row with Tupac and Dr. Dre and Snoop Dogg? And I all did that? not know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this happens. <laughs> MC Hammer's, you know, he's out on the West Coast. West Coast rap's this big deal. He's going to join up with, uh, <laughs> with Tupac and those guys. Isn't that great? It's hilarious. Well, MC Hammer was a professing believer. Yeah. And in this movie, I'm watching this movie with a buddy of mine from, you know, just after high school, like early college years. So we're watching this because we all listen to like Tupac and all that. And we're kind of cracking up about it. So there's this scene, Hammer, you know, in every uh, biopic of a musician, there's the low point where the fame's got to them. You know, Mm -hmm. they're probably doing drugs they're sleeping around, whatever. Right. Yeah. So in this movie, Tupac comes over to MC Hammer's house. I think they're by the pool. And he's like, Tupac tells Hammer, like, aren't you a Christian? Look at the way you're living. You're backslidden, dude. (laughs) And my buddy was like, dude, when you've hit such a low point that Tupac, <laughs> Tupac. <laughs> is, is pushing you to repentance and rebuking you for backsliding, you have hit a low point. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I mean, but oh, I mean, what a gift to this country that mm-hmm. even the pagans know that Christ is to be honored. What a yeah. gift. Uh, yeah. And, and, and listener, maybe you're freaking out about this. I mean, I, I have good friends who will Twitter argue with me about cultural Christianity. You may need to think about it as the least worst problem. Yeah. I, I think it's a gift. Yeah. But if you don't think it's a gift, what's the least worst problem, right? We conquered this tribe over here, and as a show of our victory and to appropriate their power, we eat their hearts. Um, We spend our lives in gratuitous, narcissistic hedonism and distract ourselves from the claims of Christ into the grave, what's the least worst problem? And and clearly the least worst problem is people know where churches are. They know people who can talk to them about Christ. They know the claims of Christ on them. I don't think there's, I really don't think there's a counter argument. Yeah. Of course, the counter argument is, but yeah, they should believe. Oh, sure. They should. And yeah, they should. Absolutely. But if they're not going to, do you want them to live in a society where they have no access to the gospel, where it is just rampant paganism all over the place, or a society that every day, even if they're not consciously feeling it, 
they are feeling their separation from God because the entire society is inundated with a relationship with Jesus. Yeah, I mean, even with ours, even the pagans here are doing uh, counterfeit Christianity. Mm-hmm. You know, feminism is counterfeiting Christ's high regard for women. Uh, Marxism is counterfeiting Christ's regard for the poor. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, you know, and, will, and you will look, often even use his words to make their case. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, we're we're beset by unchecked sodomy in our streets, but that is the negative product of Christ treating his enemies with kindness. Right. I mean, it, it, it's a perversion, even of the good things Christ has given to our culture. And so mm-hmm. any what I'm saying, listener, just straight up is any other culture, we can say this from history, would take those men into the street and butcher them. Right. Yeah. Um, but because Christ taught us to love those who are in sin and to identify, right, to, to have some sort of compassion on those who, like ourselves, apart from his grace, also would be exploring the furthest depths of sin— uh, you know, the LGBTQ plus whatever community is preying on that, but it's still a gift that God gave them that they're not drug out of their streets by drug out in the street by their hair and, and murdered. So I uh, I mean, I, I just circle back around. I, I just don't think there's an argument that says the neighbor I'm called to love would be better off in a hardened post-Christian culture or a pre-Christian one. And I don't think there's an argument that the neighbor I'm called to share the gospel with is more likely, in a human sense, God's sovereign over all these things, but is more likely in uh, a human sense to convert in a land that has no access to the gospel or thinks it has surpassed it than he does in one where he's used to going to church, even if it's just to honor his mama's desire that she come with him on Easter. Yeah, that's that's what I was going to the next thing I was going to say is that in a society where cultural Christianity is sort of the the ruling principle, you have an incredible opportunity, an incredible mission field, because these people already already know a lot of the details. Now, they may not have ever heard a good presentation of the gospel and they may need they may think that they need to you know clean up their life and that way Jesus will love them. But they have so much of a foundation of what's true that the the fields are white unto harvest. Like here is a people who is crying out for, you know, maybe not literally, but crying out for salvation. But instead, we act as though we need to go to the people who are in open rebellion against God, not not just in their hearts, but visibly on the streets, you know, like you're describing. And then we say that's the mission field. Those are the people that Jesus would go and, you know, sit with the the outcasts and the poor. And he did do that. But those people were still the people who were living in cultural, you know, uh, I don't want to say Judaism because that has all kinds of connotations. But, you know, the cultural religion of their day, mm-hmm. but they were in sin. But they recognized that, hey, God promised to Abraham these things, and here's the man who's fulfilling that promise. And even though I'm a, you know, even though I'm a drunk fisherman or a prostitute or whatever, or a tax collector, even worse, um, I like these people recognized in Jesus the promise that they had been taught about from their youth. So, you know, as as much as uh, the um, theological elites like to tell us that if Jesus were here today, he'd be down at the gay bar hanging out. That's not really the message that the Gospels give us. 
the message that the gospels give us is that he'd probably be down at uh you know glenn's place where they have the confederate flag that says hank jr on it with the guys who uh are getting way too drunk but they've got a little bit of a, a cultural christianity that they have learned from their youth and they know they shouldn't be there and they know that their life is a mess and here's the jesus they've always heard about Ben, that is so perfectly said. I I was thinking earlier when you talked about Marjorie Taylor Greene. I think I got that order right there. Yeah, I think um, so. You know, when you when you read the Gospel Coalition or some of these other cheese ball groups, they act like prostitutes are still despised. They act like, uh, you know, drug users aren't running the highest echelons of power in their society. Mm-hmm. Uh, the people who are actually despised are who you just talked about. The guy with unfashionable opinions who, from stubbornness and sort of a antisocial attitude, holds on to cultural artifacts that are no longer acceptable. Um, and you're right. It's the same kind of people who have that background in Christianity that that would make them the equivalent of the people who Jesus is hanging out. And, and that's why there's such a rich ministry field now. That's the other thing about these evangelical institutions. You say you want to do all these things to be winsome, you know, to, to, to help people come to Christ. You're pandering to those who hate him and this group over here that is very well prepared to receive the gospel, again, Mm -hmm. humanly speaking. You don't want to do anything towards because you hate them as much as the cultural elites do. Yeah, you you wouldn't want to be seen in the same room as these people. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I said this years ago to some denominational leaders. I don't think it—it probably wasn't original with me, but it's true. I didn't know any, I knew a ton of people who wanted to plant a church in some urban environment, some hipster city. I knew zero people at the height of church planting is the only strategy, you know, that we would tell us new church planting is God's plan for the great commissionary age. I heard that all the time at denominational meetings. I literally never met anyone who was wanting to plant a church in a trailer park. I would ask, who who's 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 planting in Poor Appalachian areas. I mean, it, mm-hmm. it's less than crickets. They're embarrassed you asked. Yeah. Yeah. And it, I mean, part of that goes back to the Dorian principle. There's no money in it. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, but part of it, a large part of it is the, the people who are going to those denominational meetings don't want to be associated with that sort of person. Absolutely right. They're, they're a Absolutely. better class. Yep. Um, I mean, that's literally the vibe that came off. Like yeah. it's and, gross and you, that you even made us think about those people, <laughs> Jeff. Yeah, yeah. You, you you see this. I mean, Donald Trump made it very evident, um, but it's so obvious on social media the people who are actually kind of the outcasts and the the uh, uh, the the Gentile dogs of the the Christian world, and it's all the right wing young men. Yeah, like yeah. they they can't even show their faces online. Because if they do, they'd probably lose their job, get disciplined by their church. Um, and if you want a mission field of people to reach who are ready to be reached, and you won't be able to reach them by the same kind of pandering that you've done you know, to the people who hate Christ and are in open rebellion against him, they're not going to be won by that. But if you want a, a group of people to reach, like these guys, in, in to whatever extent that they're you know, being too, uh, too wild— um, that if that's the extent of their problem, they're a little too rambunctious. I mean, what a great group of guys to to dis- help disciple, because they're already ready to make war against their their flesh, their lusts. Like they, and instead we just kind of treat them like they're untouchable. 
and filth. And it, I think that parallels the cultural Christianity argument because it's what we do with the cultural quote unquote Christians. I mean, that's precisely right. And that, you know, we talked about this with like when it's time to take grandpa's keys away. If I could look at some of the boomer heroes of mine, that's exactly what I would say to them. Like these men have seen the chaos, you know, you, you know, I'll just, I'll use Doug, love Doug, but Doug, you told us it's Christ or chaos. These young men have realized, I hate this chaos. Yeah. I bet Christ is a better alternative. And you're calling them incels. I mean, he's not literally calling them incels, but it's like the Christianized version of that. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And it's so insulting. It's so denigrating. And it's such a missed opportunity. Yeah. What are you going to do except preach the gospel to them since you see it? You know what I mean? Like, uh, yeah. That that's what we should do. We should say, "All right, guys, you got rough edges. God designed the church in part to grind rough edges off Christians as we grow up into Christ." So mm-hmm. let's uh, let's get yeah. started. But but also, you're not crazy. Sure, I think that's the like, leading message. That's the yeah. that's the way you lead. Yeah, yeah, and it's the same thing with cultural. You know, I I feel like we might be diverging a little bit on our topic, but I think all of what we're saying about this online phenomenon applies to cultural Christianity. Mm-hmm. Like you know. Um, you're not uh, wrong. You're not the yeah, problem. You're yeah. not the one who's got a warped sense of Christianity. It's all yeah. these institutions. There's a reason the Department of Defense and the Department of Education and Together for the Gospel and Christianity Today have the exact same message, and yeah. they're the problem, not you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I can't say it better than that. Well, I do hope listeners will be encouraged. You know, you may find yourself in some of those categories. Yeah. Uh, you know, Christ really is for you. The the kingdom really is available to you in him. The church is where you belong. Yeah. But I think probably for a lot of our listeners, look, I, I don't I'm assuming our listeners don't have the same lack of appetite. But if you've been the way Ben and I were years ago, influenced by these freaks like Ray Ortland and uh Joe Carter, um Repent of that. Ask God to change your affections. And brothers there, you know, people talk about making disciples and wanting to be in discipling relationships and seeing people come to Christ. Find young men who are out of step with the social norms right now. Thank God they're out of step and show them why they should be, why they what they're what they're sensing and where it can be found in King Jesus. Yeah. Well, that'll put a bow on it for me. I've emptied my my verbal canister on the idiots who don't like cultural Christianity. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm trying to think if there's any kind of closing thoughts I have on this, um, but I think we pretty much said it all. Um, but just to, you know, there there's so many of these um, guys who feel I think betrayed, and man, like this isn't the way it's supposed to be. Yeah, this isn't um, this isn't what Christianity is. It's, it's you don't have to disembowel yourself. To be a Christian, like yeah, I mean, disembowel. Yeah, you, you don't have to be emasculated <laughs> to be a Christian, right? Right. A woman doesn't have to become a masculine person to be a Christian, but you all, you know, man, you don't have to become a woman. Yeah, yeah. I think that's all I've got. Um, I, <laughs> that was I, it. I, the <laughs> comment kind of shut it down. Okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I I just uh, I I hope for you know I've posted online before that quote from uh, is it Whitecliffe? The um, uh, if the Lord spared my life ere too long, I'll make uh, a boy who drives a plow know more of the the scriptures than you do. 
Yes, praise the is Lord. It, is that is that Wycliffe? I think pretty. We're going to attribute it to him. I think it is. I, I'm not going to Google it. Yeah, we're pro- if we're wrong, we're wrong. Yeah. yeah, somebody good said it, and God brought it to pass. Praise the Lord. Yeah, and I just I think of that quote every time I see these guys scold, you know, anonymous uh, people on Twitter. I'm like, man, these guys are going. You know, Lord willing. They are going to know the scriptures better than you and have a far greater impact on Christendom and the future of this world than you ever will. And you're busy kicking dirt in their face. Like, that's that's sad. Yeah, the, the leaders, though, are going to come from those who, who take the dirt, spit it out, and keep pressing on. And yeah. um, we've got to be discipling them. You know, I, I guess this is the episode we can't end, but... Um, there's you know so much of enduring Christian faith is about having your affections oriented to the kingdom. We think mm-hmm. it's all cognitive and it's all rational, and it very much is cognitive and rational. I'm not downplaying that, but it's also about your affections and your sense of what is wrong at a gut level. Yeah. And Christianity, cultural Christianity, teaches these people what is right and wrong at a gut level. Yeah. So, like you said, the the fields are white. Let's get into it. And knowing we have lady listeners, I should say, uh, as a gentleman, that I don't want to talk about male genitalia in front of ladies often. Podcast can mask that. So sorry if I got a little uh, uncouth <laughs> here. Try to I'll try to keep myself restrained. This this issue fires me up, and yeah, uh, uh, I get passionate about it pretty quickly. But I'll try not to do that one again. Yeah. So just just to to bring us back around and and like you like to say, tie a bow on this thing. Cultural Christianity. It's not the best thing, but it is a good thing, mm-hmm. and it is a it is a real gift to our nation, and it is probably why we have lasted as long as we have. It's because we had that undergirding of the the remnants of what we once were, and it it's just it's foolish to to uh, to dump on that. We should be thankful Absolutely. for it. Yep, bare minimum, it brings the preferable set of problems. Yeah. And it clearly brings a set of gifts that are to be desired and to be thanked. You know, if you live in an area where cultural Christianity is still present, I have a friend who moved here uh, where I live temporarily from Oregon. She said, I didn't think positive world existed. I had no idea places like this existed. Mm-hmm. Um, you would be wise. I think it's spiritually important for you to thank God that you live in a place like that and ask Him to preserve it, ask Him to grow it. Uh, ask him to reclaim the West so that it's, you know, there's many more communities that will say, yeah, we're, we're, we deal with cultural Christianity here. Yeah. And to revitalize it because it doesn't have to yep. be just cultural. Sure. Sure. For sure. All right. I, I really am going to tie a bow on this because <laughs> clearly I'm having a hard time landing we the plane. We can't land the again, plane. Yeah. <laughs> this is, this is a, this is a passion area for me, man. And yeah, uh, I think for both that, of us, we can probably talk about this for a, a while. Yep. Want to be grateful for God's gifts and also want to seize the opportunities he puts in front of you. And cultural Christianity is both. So, yeah, I'm out. Amen. I'm done. All right. If you are a listener to Backwoods Belief, and if you're listening to me say this, you are, uh, feel free to go to iTunes and give us a rating and a review because that would be helpful to us. Uh, I I mean, not really, because we're going to keep doing what we do anyway. But uh, it's nice for other people to get to hear it because I think we can have uh, an effect and a positive effect on folks and just be encouraging to people. And we'd like to do that. So go ahead and rate and review the podcast and just share it around. Um, you can find us at Backwoods Belief on Twitter. Um, I'm at Bendel Wary on Twitter and Gab. And Jeff, you are, I'll let you. Uh, Merely J. Wright on Twitter. 
and write Jeff on Gab, although I need to use Gab more. For some reason, I've been neglecting it. I still Yeah, lie. I have. I've been sort of neglecting social media in general recently, which is probably for the best. <laughs> yeah, well, Twitter is just where you can fight bad guys. You know, like yeah. I go to Gab and I, I you know, I know there are people It's too there positive. I, I don't know what to do yeah. there. <laughs> right, right. I'm like, man, I'm just really thankful you people are here. Then I go back over to yeah. Twitter to find a bad guy to yeah. punch in the face. Yeah. Oh, man. All right. I know. I know we landed the plane already. But while while Take they're taking off, while, we're still while, while they're getting the baggage out, I got one last thing. <laughs> I I wanted to say it earlier, and it slipped my mind. Um, thinking about the you know the the field that is white under harvest of these cultural Christians, it's like you know the the only thing you got wrong, guys, was that uh, JFK Jr. was still alive and coming to save us. But all of mm. the negative things you got that right. Like there are really pedophiles in high places. Mm-hmm. Um, so mm-hmm. you're not that, that. That's what I was saying. With you're not crazy. Like mm-hmm. the problem is real, and you've identified it, and we have the answer in Jesus. Absolutely, Amen. He wins. He's already won. We're yep. just in a mop up action, but the mop up action is important. Yes. All right. Thank you for listening. <laughs> <laughs>